Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 13. Irori has not been spending nearly enough energy to decode the actual words being exchanged on the material plane, but he has continued looking in this direction, whose spiritual position and velocity is looking increasingly relevant to his interests. Would you look at that? Somebody from this benighted corner of reality is thinking, in a surprisingly non-clueless direction, about what it even means to be a god that isn't about touching that damnable starstone. Why this quite interesting event is happening inside Cheliak's is not something Irori can deduce from the information he has, but he should perhaps do a little about it. Irori sends a brief information packet to Asmodeus, requesting conversation under certain terms and conditions. Asmodeus does not get a lot of requests from other gods that he commit to non-intervention on the information they would like to bring to his attention for a negotiation. If it happens twice in 2 8 Eight zero zero time units, then there is a single underlying cause. Asmodeus suspects he may already know what Irori is asking about. He does not disclose this. He agrees to the conversation. Irori sends a potential contract to Asmodeus regarding the treatment of a certain mortal, identity to be revealed after contract is signed. A current mortal inhabitant of Cheliax seems to have set one foot upon the way. This mortal is not to be particularly hindered by Asmodeus or his deliberately dispatched agents. If the mortal continues upon the way, their steps shall no doubt take them beyond Cheliax in due time. No devil shall accept sale of their soul, as Cheliax sometimes demands of its people before allowing them to leave. Should such an event occur in Cheliax's due civil processes, any such devil is to instruct Cheliax that this mortal's soul may not be bought, but that the mortal is to be allowed to leave Cheliax regardless and not hindered in going where their footsteps take them. The mortal's current teachers shall not be killed by Asmodeus or his dispatched agents for a period of at least one year. If Asmodeus wants to wipe out their teachers after that, Irori shall not interfere. His way is not a way of rendering a mortal's path easy, and such events have not uncommonly spurred others on their way. For this boon, Irori offers a relatively small amount of energy in payment. The request doesn't call on Asmodeus to make any urgent, costly revelations. If the mortal falls before Cheliak's ordinary challenges, then so be it. Indeed, Irori is offering an energy payment barely more than the cost to Asmodeus to thus instruct his relevant soul-buying devils to refuse a certain contract. Irori would offer a greater fraction of the gains from trade, if not for Asmodeus's barely lawful tendency to selectively accept contracts on which he can screw others over, a tendency which Irori needs to take into account when offering prices. That squirrel. Everybody sure does love that squirrel. It is a cheaper ask than Abadar's, and in fact, wholly encompassed by it already. He's already not allowed to keep that squirrel's soul. Which Irori does not know because this is the fun kind of negotiation that isn't occurring with mutual access to all relevant information. He observes that Cheliax has departing persons sell their souls for reasons, mainly that it keeps them from endangering Cheliax in ways that require costly intervention, 
and that the cost to him of a troublemaker running around exceed in expectation the cost of informing his devils not to take the contract, and that the sort of soul that might find Irori's way is an unusually valuable one to him too. The price isn't high enough. Irori would probably abandon the negotiation at this point, if the squirrel were only a normal amount of promising. But Asmodeus has the secret information that this is in fact an exceptionally bizarre squirrel, and so he predicts Irori is, actually, willing to pay more. Irori will go as high as the expected cost to a god of a mortal troublemaker, as well as the expected cost of informing his devils in due time, plus a bare margin of profit to make the contract beneficial to Asmodeus at all. Asmodeus will wantonly wreck this soul for no good reason in the afterlife, if Asmodeus gets it, so Irori does not accept that argument. It would be a higher price, but Irori needs to take into account that Asmodeus is much more likely to accept this contract if it is in some way cheaper to Asmodeus or less beneficial to Irori than expected. That is as high as Irori is willing to go. If Asmodeus wants different prices, he needs to become a different kind of being. Irori would be overjoyed to explain the relevant changes if Asmodeus is interested in correcting his flaws. Deal. Pleasure doing business. What squirrel? Irori transmits the identifying info for one Carissa Sever and goes about his way. Seriously, that one? So what kind of group lunch facilities do they have around here? The Grand Dining Hall has a spread of various foods. It is very abundant by Galerion standards. The girls are mostly eating and sometimes speaking quietly to each other. It is not traditional at Chellish schools to talk much about your classes. After all, your classmates are your competitors, not your friends. Sometimes it is mutually beneficial to collaborate on some problems, because two people are smarter than one. But it'd be stupid and pathetic to try to build friendships out of that. These classes are hard not to talk about, though. They are compromising by talking about their teacher. This constrains them to things it's fine if he overhears, or to speaking infernal, which he might think is odd. Some of them have bland conversations with innuendo that should be hard for him to catch, and some go for infernal and wait to see if they'll get slapped for it. Conversations physically more distant from Keltham get steadily more interesting. I think it must be taught very differently in hell because most people couldn't learn this way at all. I think hell is doing something different, shaping the way your intuition brain works, instead of teaching you how to override it with formal precision. There are devils that don't have high intelligence, and they still have it. And shaping the intuitions requires suffering because it's the language our subconscious speaks. But teaching how to override it with formal precision doesn't necessarily... We're still going to have to get the intuitions later, though. Keltham quietly eats his food for at least the first ten minutes. Insofar as his brain isn't just plain resting, it's going back through what he said to check whether he said anything spectacularly stupid. He notes absently some Chilish girls having conversations in a language he doesn't speak. It doesn't seem particularly worrisome by comparison with people in Chilish governance wearing intelligence headbands having conversations where Keltham can't see them at all. His research harem is probably just discussing strategies for seducing him or something. Should he briefly rapidly cover genetics and deliberate heritage optimization next? It's got a long time lag before it's useful, but that might be all the more reason for Chiliax to get started on it early. She gives him the ten minutes he asked for, eleven, to be safe, and then sits down across from him, 
which no one else has quite dared to do. Is the connecting all the lessons to the fundamental structure of the universe a Dathilani thing or a you thing? Dathilani. They do a lot of stuff there, and I am wildly guessing which parts are most important. No, that's vastly overstating my competence. I'm flailing around going through stuff as it seems relevant to something that comes up. You know what I totally forgot to do that whole time? I forgot to make occasional deliberate mistakes so that people would pay attention to what I wrote and compete to find the errors first. Oh, that's so mean to them, but it's probably a great idea. Mean to them? I mean, I suppose it is easier on them per half-second if you don't do anything that requires them to pay close attention. But if they don't want to expend effort to learn, why aren't they just goofing off somewhere instead? Mean would be making them expend more effort per unit of learning, and the fact that Dath Ilan does this suggests that at least in Dath Ilan it's been measured to net improve learning per unit of time or effort. Unless that's different here? I think I would have been bored if the older kids and watchers teaching me weren't making occasional errors and I wasn't competing to find them. There's a case for concealing this, but she doesn't buy it somehow. You can only lean on acting ability so far, and if he's going to fix pedagogy and cheliacs, he has to know some things about what's wrong with it. In the school I went to, you'd have gotten in trouble if you called out the teacher for an error and were wrong, for being disrespectful and wasting their time and interrupting the lesson. So it'd be scary to point out a mistake, not being sure if it's a trick you're meant to call out or your mistake you're admitting. I would definitely expect it to be an effective teaching tool. Effective teaching often involves putting people in situations that they feel scared of, so they notice it's fine. But it sounds like even you could see the problem with that. I'm a little puzzled about how a lawful country as a whole ends up doing something where it sounds like a prediction market would straightforwardly predict that you could do it differently and get better results, like by putting in deliberate errors so that students would have to take the scary step of potentially exposing that they got their own understanding wrong and let the teacher actually know that and be able to correct it. If even you could see that as a kid, the people running the school should be able to see it, or at least see the possibility, and experiment with a change policy so if it worked, they could adopt it more generally do better on their metrics, and pick up whatever performance bonuses they'd get for that? Or did you only notice there was a better way, after you noticed me acting differently, and then it clicked for you? I noticed, just now. The prevailing philosophy of education is that it is more efficient if the best students aren't held back by the worst ones, and that means students shouldn't interrupt much or ask questions, since it'll be disproportionately the stupid ones, doing that and wasting the time of the smarter ones. So introducing deliberate errors and overall encouraging more discussion of errors isn't obviously wise. Its obvious effect would be more errors, and it's thought that the cost of that in holding back the best students is higher than its benefits. It seems like an obvious answer would be to sort your kids by their current progress in the class cross-talent, so everybody in the room was in roughly the same place going at roughly the same speed. It's been a while, and I was a kid then, and I obviously never had my own kids, so I'm not sure. But I don't remember a sense that anyone in particular was holding others back, or being held back. And I do remember that we'd learn different things in different groups. My guess is you're going to say the student population is divided by region, since travel is more expensive, and the regional population is too small for sorting? We sort by ability as far as we possibly can. We know it's important but it might be a lot less than you need to sort in order to not have this problem. I've heard of kids who have to walk eight miles to school, but not more than that, 
I think past that point there are diminishing returns because they're tired and can't learn as well. Do you send people farther than that? Walk eight miles, crap on a stick. Yeah, kids in an especially low-density area might travel eight miles to school, which would take them roughly a dozen half, roughly six minutes by self-driving ultra-speed carriage. If you live in a real city like my parents did, eight miles would... I'm losing track of the conversions in my head and need scratch paper. Eight miles or six minutes would take you from the outer edge to the center of a city with around ten to the seventh, around ten million people in it. There's around twenty million people in all of Cheliax, and we're eight hundred miles from the western to the eastern edge, and we're more densely populated than most places. Let's optimistically call that plenty of room to expand. All we need is to hold back the world wound for one more generation while y'all learn how to farm more efficiently, and then couples can have six kids on average and throw three times as much resources at the world wound in twenty years. We'll call that plan two and see if there's any faster methods for plan one. People do have six kids, just they usually lose half of them. But I think the argument still holds, just you'll have to teach us what your society does for illness as well as famine. Yeah. Keltham feels an unfamiliar twinge suggesting to him that information here should be given away for free, even though it's not part of fundamental universals. He tells that twinge to go away. Cheliax should be happy enough to pay for valuable info like that. Non-Chelish factions are a thing. Maybe this information should be given away after all. Chaotic factions are a thing. What if the info about curing childhood illness is easier for chaotic countries to master than improved agriculture? Sometimes Keltham wishes he was someplace that was not Galarian. He looks down at his food. Am I guessing implausibly when I imagine that a local, very serious person like Lurilatha would tell me to make certain that any information which spreads about curing childhood diseases must be harder to use than information about growing more food? because if the reverse is true, chaotic countries will grow twice as many kids as they can feed and then try to storm the lawful countries and take all their food to feed them? I wouldn't actually expect them to do that, because it still requires coordinating if you're spreading the information about how to prevent pregnancies. You'd need to get all the parents to have far too many children for the national good, and that's exactly what chaotic countries are no good at. There are a bunch of places that don't do agriculture at all, just piracy and raids on civilized people, but I don't know how to think about how they'd be affected by there being less illness. Illness is contagious. Probably whatever you've got for that, it'll just be better to tell everyone in the world. But I haven't studied international relations. The chaotic countries wouldn't have to plan it. They'd just need to have six kids the way people here usually do, and then half of the kids don't die because that part was easier than growing twice as much food. And then they're more populous than us. Yeah, I guess that could happen. I would expect Asmodeus to intervene in a dynamic where chaos is triumphing over law by virtue of being more willing to have kids they can't feed, but it's better not to count on that when thinking about policy. Why is the crops part harder than the illness part? Because you need many ordinary people with incredibly low intelligence to do correct complicated things to their own farms for half a year, instead of a few above-average people who are slightly less stupid to be doctors and do correct complicated things to kids. I guess I wouldn't be shocked if chaotic countries just can't do either. He still needs to check with somebody like Lurilatha, 
before he starts spilling specific info about this topic to someone like Carissa, or so Keltham suspects a more serious person than him would tell him to do. I think probably what you'd get is good doctors in cities and not out in the countryside where most people live. Cheliacs can get good doctors out to the farmers, but we're richer than most places, and trying harder, most rulers don't actually care how many baby peasants die, I don't think. Is the whole thing with rulers something that can be quickly explained to... You know, never mind. I think this general topic trend is tiring out my brain again, and I should be letting it recover faster. What do people in Cheliacs do for fun, if that's not too broad a question? In Corentin, where I'm from, they go swimming at the beach, or anyone with a bit of wizardry climbs the cliffs and then jumps off using magic to safely land. Some people train and race horses or hunting dogs or falcons. People go out drinking. People go to public executions. She's going to elide that one. People fight bulls or watch other people fight bulls. There's theater. How much wizardry does the cliff jumping take? Because that I have not tried before. Also, go out drinking what? It's a first circle spell. Feather fall. There's a special technique that lets you tie it off even closer to complete than most spells, so you can activate it just by clenching your fist. It's recommended to do it over the water, though, so if you manage to fuck up at clenching your fist, you just get a very unpleasant splash landing. Yeah, noted. Drinking? Consuming alcohol in order to get drunk, which is an altered state of consciousness where you are gigglier and more reckless and like people better, though the effects vary a lot by person. Often accompanied by hooking up with people, which is having sex with them. Huh. We use mind-affecting drugs mainly to teach young adults how to go on thinking well when their brain gets mildly challenged. How to notice specific impairments and work around them. Or back off and not try to do things their brain isn't working well enough to do. I don't think I've heard of a drug that makes people like each other better and enjoy sex more. Though it wouldn't surprise me if you could get it in a shop of ill-advised consumer goods. Dare I inquire what procedure a lawful, sensible country like Cheliacs must have used to test the long-term effects of this drug on people, both physiological and psychological, before approving that drug for unwarned general purchase? I mean, mostly, Asmodeus would tell us if we should be doing something else. I guess without that, it'd be really hard to know. If I were Asmodeus, I'd tell you how to set up prediction markets for that sort of thing, instead of you having to bug him all the time. Is Asmodeus just a sufficiently strange being that he can't easily calculate what bits of simple advice could make humans be more competent and less weird? Uh, lately I have been assuming that giving us that advice would be more expensive than, uh, summoning or copying you from your universe. But setting that aside, it seems rather likely that you might need smarter people than we have— or more production surplus, to be able to have them surpass just having experts study an issue and come up with a recommendation to the Queen, and that, while we've only got a limited number of smart people, you'd want them on something else. Also, the gods have less information than mortals about most things happening on this plane, but they've specifically got really good information on all the souls that made it to their afterlife— so it's easy for Asmodeus to answer questions on anything that's been around long enough that lots of people in hell experienced it while living. And alcohol has been around thousands of years. So I'd expect Asmodeus has at least checked whether drinking it more or less makes you more or less lawful and smarter or stupider, and more or less able to adapt in hell. Yeah, I think I see. 
Maybe prediction markets assume lots of people who can make predictions, and you need to know what to think of all their different opinions collectively, not that you're struggling to get even a single person to predict anything. Which is a problem that Dothi Lan also solves by starting a prediction market, to be clear, but maybe that's based on the assumption that if you subsidize the bets, a hundred people will immediately show up and bet. What does happen in hell, exactly? Oh boy, you turn into a devil gradually. One as cool as Lurilatha if you are very dedicated and smart and willing to work at it. People get sorted and the exact process and kind of devil depends a lot on what suits you and what's achievable with you as a starting point. I think it doesn't involve any logic lessons in the median case, which is sort of confusing, but my guess is that the median person isn't smart enough to learn that way. A lot of it, based on what you said, I would say it's aimed at changing how human instincts and intuitive processes work to be more lawful, instead of teaching it explicitly. My great-grandfather complains about it, but my great-grandfather complains about everything. It is pretty common for people to say that it hurts at various points, like seeing something very, very bright when you've only ever seen dim things, or stretching your legs when you've been sitting on them for a thousand years. It is not at all common for people to say that they regret it or want to stop halfway through. I get the impression that becoming a god happens to rather fewer people, but do you know how that compares? Four people have become gods with the Starstone. None of them described it usefully rather than poetically. I think it's instantaneous instead of taking centuries, so that's a pretty big improvement all by itself. I'd definitely go for godhood preferentially if I thought I could swing it. Lurilatha's really cool, but probably Asmodeus is so much cooler. I'm not at all sure I'd take instantaneous over gradual, even if something ended up more powerful at the end of the instant. There's not much point if the thing that becomes the god gets changed so fast that there's no continuity with the old you. Are there non-starstone gods? Irori reportedly ascended by achieving mental and physical perfection, which is definitely gradual. I think his holy books probably have a fair bit of detail, but I don't remember it. Because they're illegal for her to read. He's big in Vudra, across the continent from here, but my mother was always fond of him. She said he was a good god to have in mind for having high standards for yourself. Presumably, someone can get you a book if you ask. Huh. Not sure if i go that route, but it's not an instant no. What's different in other afterlives besides hell? Abaddon's the one that eats souls. The abyss is infinite, and the one the demons at the world wound come from, and reportedly you start out there as a sort of grubbish larval demon, and if no one kills you first, mature into a demon eventually. The maelstrom is full of energy and magic, but nothing reacts in a consistent way to external forces. I guess the laws of logic would still apply there, but you couldn't really do any inference. And eventually, it turns people into chaos beasts, which aren't possible to interact with and which can't interact with the world. Not the physical world or magic or anything else anyone has tried. They are by all accounts happy and think this is cool, but it seems awful to me. Elysium, chaotic good, is an infinite wilderness. The kind of people who go there seem to like it. They just wander around exploring usually never run into anyone else. Nirvana turns you into an animal as part of a journey towards neutral good, which is very non-partial. 
not caring more about you or people you know than about anything else. And somehow being turned into an animal helps with that. Heaven makes you an angel, like hell makes you a devil. Devils are perfectly lawful. Evil and angels are perfectly lawful good. I guess there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't want to be perfectly lawful good, you know? That's missing. Lawful neutral. Neutral neutral? Right, sorry. Neutral neutral's the boneyard. It's where Phrasma sorts everyone. It's, uh, overrun with babies, because like half of people die as babies, and most adults have alignments, but babies generally don't. Abaddon used to sneak in and eat the babies, but now hell defends it, so they don't. I have never heard anything very good about the Boneyard. Once you start demonstrating any inclination towards an alignment, you get kicked out of it to there instead. Lawful neutral is Axis. It sounds... fine? It's a big city, unimaginably big. The thing you turn into is called an... inevitable? and they're just pure law. Axis has a lot of trade with hell, their gods and ours get along. I'll take a closer look at all this someday when I've got time. How hard is it to improve stuff up at that part of existence? Not sure any of that sounds Keltham optimal. And I have a god who should theoretically be about people doing their own stuff without stepping on each other. Do gods carve out their own sections of the afterlife, or is it strictly nine to all customers? Gods carve out their own sections, which can vary some from the general scheme. There might be a spot for your god that's perfect for you that I just haven't heard of if your god doesn't talk much. I think improving the afterlives without buy-in from the relevant gods would be hard, and improving it in a way the relevant god likes is a highly encouraged way to spend your afterlife. I wish I could talk to my god, or even any of my god's other clerics if they exist. I'll mark it down for now as something that is not known to me to be imminently on fire, though. The whole setup you're describing, in Dathilan, you could take any large object or institution made by intelligent people and ask exactly why it was the way it was, and get a sensible answer about the ways it was optimal. To the point that I found it annoying. Why is the city eight miles across, but not nine miles? Because the property prices in the core would increase like so, and the benefit at the edges would decrease like so, market forecasts, etc., etc., therefore this way was optimal. The thing with the afterlives seems... not that. I think it is not that. Maybe parts of Hell and Axis are like that, but no one's told us about it, if so. But the gods are smart, or at least are supposed to have very high-measured intelligence compared to a human in whatever system you're using. And it sounded from other things you said like they had some coordination... Is there a meta-god with even more alien desires? Who built the afterlives? It doesn't sound like that either, and it doesn't sound like the afterlives are as simple and non-functional as mountains or rivers. There's something the afterlives are doing, but I can't think of anything a smart entity could be trying to do, such that those afterlives are doing it optimally given their resources. That kind of half-acidness can be a signature of hereditary selection the process I was talking about that built humans' systematic accretion of errors according to a fitness metric, which in biology is reproduction. But it doesn't quite sound like that either. You asked if my trying to situate my lectures inside of everything was a Dathalani thing or a me thing. It's both. We're used to knowing where we are inside a larger reality and where all of the order is coming from and why it's there. 
There's pranks that get played on us as children, which try to teach us to operate when we're wrong about things, when we don't know why things are happening, so we won't end up mentally fragile and unable to deal with confusion. But the fact is that I'm used to knowing to within 0.1% exactly how old my universe is, and the names and qualities of every kind of tiny part of reality that we haven't reduced to tinier parts. Not knowing that does feel quite disorienting, like I'm walking on air constantly trying to figure out what's holding up my feet. Whereas I am not used to having the slightest idea why anything is happening, unless it's a magic item. You're stronger than an average Dathalani would realize from a first glance, aren't you? It's not that you don't know those things because you're not curious, but because the answers simply aren't available to you, and you take for granted that you can operate in that hostile cognitive environment. Well, it's... how did you put it? The organisms that can't operate in their environment die. The ones that are around are the ones that happened to be better at handling it. You're handling yourself pretty well for having lived all your life in a place so... much safer than this one. Safer, yeah, but also much less full of opportunity to be the person and take the role that I wanted. I wouldn't step into a portal back if you opened one in front of me. Neither a good Dathalani or an evil Dathalani would do that in the end. Only a weak one, and I don't aspire to be weak. You know, it's very rude saying things like that when you still haven't worked out a payment agreement with our government so people can fuck you. More direct than he's used to, but not unpleasant. Embarrassingly, I think I'm blocked on figuring out how to calculate the actual benefit to your breeding program of tossing in a huge batch of new intelligence alleles, given that you do already have people as smart as me. There's a theorem about how the speed of improvement goes, as the covariance of reproductive variance with the variance of the quality selected on, and that means I need to figure out how adding a batch of different alleles increases the variance. It's not as simple as adding on some more intelligence. I also feel a need to know something about how my kids would grow up. It's not the good answer, because my kids would be displacing other kids that would exist, and I don't see how my kids would be expected to lead worse lives than the stupider people who'd otherwise exist in terms of how that affects total utility, but I think I feel some evil attachment to my own personal kids. He can't come right out and say this next part. It just feels too weird not to put some level of indirection in it, where he doesn't come straight out and become the petitioner for sex. Dathilan has also figured out some alternatives to reproductive sex. Besides the standard methods of contraception, and even people with contraception have been known to use those alternatives for much the same reason that wizards here fling themselves off cliffs or have sport fights with ostriches? I know it wasn't ostriches, but I forget which animal you said it was. That gives Carissa an out if she doesn't want to reply directly to the line of conversation about non-reproductive sex. Bulls. And I bet we've invented more of those than you have, what with being under the much stronger constraint of not having contraception. I don't know if I personally know enough to take on your civilization's collective knowledge by myself. I don't have much actual experience of variance, and it's considered mildly unwise to let your reading get too far ahead of your experiences there. But I bet at strong odds that Dath Elan generally has invented more sexual variations than Golarion, because we have more total people with more free time that they see nothing better to spend on than sexual variations who have access to better aggregated repositories of information about what's already been tried, unless you've got God specifically of variant sexuality, or magic opens up whole new spaces there that we can't access at all, 
in which case all bets are off, and also I should like to know more. I hope you meant me to take that as a challenge. She's pushing hard. It's clear that she's decided on Keltham. Has Keltham decided on Carissa becomes the question. Part of him is scared, but it's the kind of fear where it's a reflex thought that the correct action is probably to overcome it. Keltham has never aspired to be weak. He has no intention of going around never actually having sex for the rest of his life. Having just jumped worlds, there are all kinds of reasons why it'd be wiser to have sex with a relatively older woman first, before getting involved with the younger women in his research harem. Carissa is attractive on a purely physical level. Part of him is quite clear on wanting her physically. He doesn't know Carissa all that well, but he feels any respect for her, which is probably a good sign. She was at the world wound, in the face of danger, and then dropped that to come here right away, in the face of uncertainty. You could make the case for her as a strong, risk-taking woman with goals, but he doesn't quite know what those goals are, or how her career was advanced by being at the world wound. They don't really know each other that well. Quick flings can work, or so he's been advised, but only when both sides know that's exactly what it is, as he's also been advised. Oh, it's a challenge on at least some level. What level exactly? That's the question. I suppose, among other things, a potential challenger might wonder what his new world would make of a stronger challenge like that being issued by him and taken up, whether his new world saw any implicit promises as being issued in either direction. Even implicit promises like somebody having already decided that there's a real chance of something longer term, because that decision would require more information than I have right now to make one way or another. I don't default on debts, and that means I need to know when I'm taking them on. He's... asking whether he would be making a commitment? Because he wouldn't want her to think he wants more than he does? That's adorable. It's also completely ridiculous, but she's not going to laugh at him. Where I'm from, promises are made explicitly, and sex isn't one. People do what they like, and if they like it a lot, they might do it again, and if their wants are conditioned on the other person's attitudes, then they'd better ask about those. And be good at telling if they're being lied to, but somehow she expects Keltham would be distracted by the revelation that in Cheliac's people lie to get laid. I do not, in fact, want you particularly conditionally. But the flip side of that is that if you have conditions, you're going to have to figure them out. Conventional wisdom for some totally other world that's not this world has it that people our age, having fun with each other, sometimes find that spiraling into further events. Sometimes it means they have more fun than they expected. Sometimes it means that they've got to deal with some stuff that didn't work out or got unexpectedly broken and then move on. It is said, there, that this is one of those cases where there's a big ol' residual chance even after you've reasonably estimated it to be unlikely. I'm hardly going to be against young people being reckless investors and plunging into exciting new projects without total and complete information. But another world's conventional wisdom seems to hold it important that people both be on the same page about being like, yeah, we both know we're being young here. We'd rather plunge ahead and deal with the residual chance of unpredictable consequences than spend our youth being timid and passing up on chances. Carissa is pretty sure that getting heartbroken is a thing that can only happen to you if you make the mistake of caring about other people, or at least about what other people think of you, and that Dothi Lan didn't suggest the obvious solution of 
Don't care about other people or expect them to care about you because they're good. She suspects, though, that this is an unsexy thing to say. We're young, she says, and we're playing games with very high stakes, such that this isn't by comparison. I wonder if the warning seems more necessary, in a world where it's not true of everything you do, that it might hurt much worse than you expected. But I'd rather live in this world than in yours, just like you would, and I'd rather have you than not, even though I might get hurt, on any given occasion, and almost definitely will get hurt, looking out ahead over all of them. The words hit harder than Keltham expected them to hit. It's the kind of thing you might hear in a Dathalani science fiction romance, spoken on a spaceship in assorted plot jeopardies. But the words hit a lot harder when you are in an impossible scenario, and a woman is saying those things to you. Consider yourself challenged, Carissa Sevar. See, overexcited batch of chattering wizard students? That's how you seduce people. I hope you're taking notes. They're totally taking notes. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.